Well, like many of you, I enjoy reading a good biography. But one of the disappointments I find with reading a biography is that they all come to a natural end. However much you've been enjoying it, when the person the biography is all about dies, it comes to an end. It's the end of the book. There's nothing more to say. Except, of course, if it's a biography about Jesus. The book of Acts is essentially a sequel to Luke's gospel, written by Luke, who was a friend and a co-worker of Paul. And in Luke's introduction to Acts in chapter 1, verse 1, Luke reminds his friend Theophilus that in his first book, he had dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up, which gives us a clue right at the start about what Luke intends this book to be all about. Acts is going to deal with all that Jesus continued to do and teach after he was taken up to heaven. Acts is volume two in Luke's biography of Jesus, which makes it a really unique kind of book, because like I said, most biographies end when someone dies. You don't normally get a sequel. But Jesus is not dead. He died on the third day and then he rose again. He is alive and still at work. Which brings us to the title of this book. It's traditionally been called the Acts of the Apostles, not that Luke himself gave it that title. But a better name for it would really be the Acts of Jesus and the Holy Spirit. Because while lots of different apostles do appear throughout the stories, the book is really all about Jesus and all that he continued to do after he ascended to heaven through the person and work of the Holy Spirit. Well, after those opening verses, Luke begins with just a little bit of a recap from his gospel, a recap of some of the final events that he recorded in his first book. Most importantly, Jesus's resurrection and the 40 days that he spent appearing to his disciples, preparing them for what was going to come next. Over those 40 days, Luke tells us that Jesus spoke to them about the kingdom of God, a kingdom that had now arrived in Jesus, the risen king. But before, before they can go and tell others about it, he tells them that they must first wait for the promise of the Father, for the promised Holy Spirit. And in chapter 1, verse 8, he tells them why. And do follow along if you've got a Bible this morning in the book of Acts. It's this verse, chapter 1, verse 8, that in many ways is the theme sentence and the roadmap for the whole of the rest of the book of Acts. This verse is like the zoom out button on Google Maps that allows you to see the whole journey from start to finish. Here it is, verse 8. Jesus said, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So if we want to know how the book of Acts is structured and where everything is headed, here it is in a nutshell. The book of Acts is all about the unstoppable spread of the gospel. The Holy Spirit is going to come upon Jesus's followers and then send them out as witnesses to tell of his life, his death, his resurrection and his ascension and offer the salvation that's now available in his name. And that message, 
Jesus says, will spread out like ripples in a pond from Jerusalem, chapters two to seven, to Judea and Samaria, chapters eight to 12, and on to the end of the earth, chapters 13 to 28. And the first ripple in the pond with the disciples as his witnesses in Jerusalem begins in chapter two on the day of Pentecost. When the day of Pentecost arrives, Luke tells us that the disciples are together all in one place, waiting just as Jesus told them. Out on the streets, however, uh, the streets are heaving. Jerusalem is heaving. Every year, thousands of Jewish pilgrims would return to Jerusalem from all over the world to celebrate this annual festival, Pentecost. A great multitude of different people, different languages and different cultures were at that very moment colliding together in the city. Now, back indoors, all of a sudden, the disciples hear a sound from heaven, like a mighty rushing wind that fills the whole house. And then they, they see divided tongues of fire appear and come and settle down upon each one of them. Now, the presence of wind and fire here is really significant. They're both vivid Old Testament pictures of God's life-giving presence coming to dwell with his people. Just think of Ezekiel 37, where the spirit of God arrives like a great wind to breathe life into a valley of dry bones. Or think of Exodus 19, where the Lord descends in a fire on Mount Sinai. Or 2 Chronicles 7, where fire comes down from heaven and the glory of the Lord fills the temple. But God had also promised that one day his presence would come to dwell, not on a mountain or in a building, but actually in his people. And now here he is. The Holy Spirit has come. And in the divided tongues of fire, we see him coming to dwell in each one of his people. This is such an important event. This is perhaps one of the two most important events in the Bible in all of redemptive history, second only to Jesus's death and resurrection. And no sooner does it happen than the disciples spill out onto the streets of Jerusalem to tell the crowds about the mighty works of God. And of course, People are amazed, partly because the disciples are speaking in languages that they've never spoken before, so that every person, wherever they're from, can hear what they're saying to them in their own native languages. It's really a foretaste of what's to come, a sign that language and culture will no longer be barriers to people coming to know God for themselves. And then Peter steps forward to explain. He tells the crowds that what they're witnessing is the fulfillment of God's promise to pour out his spirit and that salvation in all of its fullness has now come and is available. And then he begins to preach the gospel itself. And I think it's really fascinating to see the content of Peter's message, because, of course, it's the same message that has the same power to save and transform lives today. Peter's message is quite simply Jesus, his life, death, resurrection and exaltation as king of all the earth in fulfillment of all of God's Old Testament promises. 
And then in chapter 2, verse 36, Peter sums up his message like this. Verse 36, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. And in response, a great multitude of those that are listening are cut to the heart. They recognize this message demands a response. And they ask the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? It's a brilliant question. It's a good question to ask. And Peter's reply is beautifully simple and clear. Verse 38, he says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And then he reminds them who this message is for. Verse 39, the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off. It's for all people. No one is now so far removed from God that God cannot redeem them through the gospel. And on the first day that the gospel is proclaimed, Luke tells us 3,000 people receive the word and are baptized. And as a result, this new community is formed, a new family of believers, the church, who devote themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. It's a beautiful picture of what this new spirit-filled family is like. And then chapter two ends with Luke telling us the effect that this new church has, that they grew in favor with all the people and the Lord added to their number day by day, those who were being saved. But not everyone is pleased. Just as this brand new church begins to grow, opposition begins to grow too from the Jewish religious leaders, which is what we're going to move on to now in chapters three to five, a section which the guys at the Bible Project helpfully refer to as a tale of two temples. I think that's a good title. They call it that and we're calling it that because there's this special kind of symmetry throughout chapters three, four and five. At the beginning and the end, Luke reports that Jesus's followers are gathering every day all over the city. And you can see that in 246 and 542. Those two verses are like bookends of this next section. And in between those two bookends are two accounts of Peter and the other apostles healing and preaching in the temple courts and being arrested as a result. Each time Peter is questioned by the religious authorities. Each time they can't deny what they're seeing the apostles do or convincingly argue against what they're hearing the apostles say. So each time the authorities simply order the apostles to be silent and to teach no more in Jesus's name. And each time the apostles reply is we can't stop. 529, we must obey God rather than men. 4 verse 20, we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And then right in the middle of these two parallel arrests and interrogations, at the end of chapter four, is this story about 
Jesus's followers selling their possessions in order to meet the needs of the poor. It's a beautiful window into the heart of this new community. But why does Luke give it pride of place right in the middle of these three chapters? The answer is because according to the Old Testament law, this is what is supposed to be already happening through Jerusalem's temple and its leaders. Luke's point then is clear. Jesus's followers have become a new temple. What you now have in Jerusalem are two rival temples. One is the physical temple that Herod built for the Jewish people. And the other is this flesh and blood temple, this living temple that Jesus is building out of his followers. And as the Bible Project guys put it, the new temple of Jesus's community is fulfilling the purpose that God always intended for the Jerusalem temple to be a place where heaven and earth meet, where people encounter God's generosity and healing presence. The old temple has been superseded along with its religious leaders. So that's the big picture of chapters three to five, this tale of two temples. But there are just a few other things to notice in these three chapters as well before we move on and things to look out for as we read Acts this month. First, the apostles will not stop sharing the gospel, no matter the opposition. And they do that not only out of obedience to God, but also because they know, chapter 4, verse 12, there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. This is a message so important, so vital and so good that they simply can't keep silent about it. Second, in response to opposition, the first thing that the believers pray for is not rescue from opposition, but boldness in the midst of it. And God powerfully answers their prayer. Chapter four, verse 31, and when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. And third, nothing, notice this, nothing can stand in the way of the gospel going forward. It simply thrives and spreads in the face of opposition. On the day of Peter and John's first arrest, at least 2,000 people believe their message and are joined to the church. Just before their second arrest, Luke reports in 5 verse 14 that more than ever, believers were added to the Lord multitudes of both men and women. And one particular Pharisee, uh, Gamaliel, perhaps knowing more than he knew, really captures it well when he warns his fellow leaders, if this is of God, nothing will stop it. How utterly true that is. The gospel is the power of God for salvation and no one can stand in its way but there will always be people who try. And moving into chapter six and seven, the persecution of the church now really does begin. At the beginning of chapter six, the church continues to grow. And for several reasons, new leaders and servants have to be added, including a man called Stephen, who is a bold witness for Jesus, a man full of the spirit. Not long after, 
as Stephen is preaching about Jesus and working signs and wonders among the people, a dispute arises between Stephen and certain Jewish men from the synagogue. Stephen's responses to his opponents just leaves them dumbfounded. They simply can't refute what he's saying. And so they decide to attack him with trickery and false accusations, with lies instead. They secretly arrange for others to falsely accuse Stephen of speaking blasphemous words against God and against the Mosaic law and even of threatening to destroy the temple. And in response to their accusations, Stephen gives them, and I love this, he gives them in response a lesson in biblical theology. He gives them a passionate and powerful overview of the whole of the Old Testament. What he does is he retells the story of Israel and he shows how Jesus is the fulfillment of all God's dealings with them over the centuries. He also highlights the fact that God's messengers have always been mistreated by his people. Israel have had a long history of resisting the Holy Spirit, just as Stephen's accusers are doing now. It's a courageous speech to make, especially in front of such a hostile crowd. His words cut deep, but rather than softening their hearts in repentance, they harden them in an almost uncontrollable rage. Like animals, they grind their teeth at him. And then with fingers in their ears, they rush at him, drag him out and beat him to death with stones, making Stephen the first Christian martyr and by no means the last. In fact, it's at this point that Luke records uh, just over into chapter eight, verse one, there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. It's no longer just the apostles and the other leaders who are under attack. The whole Jerusalem church made up of, remember, thousands of new believers now are now experiencing persecution. And as a result, most of them are driven out of the city and scattered. It must have seemed like a great tragedy. Church life, as they knew it and loved it, ended pretty much instantaneously. But all is not as it seems. Because first, Luke introduces us, just in passing, to a new character standing in the shadows, approving of Stephen's execution, a religious leader called Saul. We'll have more from him shortly. Second, Luke tells us that the vast majority of believers, as they flee from the city, they scatter right out into the surrounding regions of Judea and Samaria, just as Jesus had promised. What was intended by its enemies to end the church turns into fuel for the gospel's advance. What men meant for evil, God used for good, as he always does turning what seems like a great tragedy into the very means by which the gospel will spread out into these new places, reaching many more people with its life-giving message. This, I think, is something for us to find great hope in, in the midst of our current global crisis. The coronavirus seems pretty tragic, and it is. But God can use even tragic events to wonderfully propel the gospel out into the world to reach new places and new people. The spread of the gospel is unstoppable. 
Now, if you're following the handout this morning, we'll get to point three in a moment. But first, there's just one more encouragement for us here. Uh, in 8 verse 4, we read that those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Now, before, it was mainly the apostles that Luke was reporting as going out and sharing the gospel. But now in 8 verse 4, it's the thousands of regular Christians who've been scattered out from the Jerusalem church who now step up and grasp this gospel opportunity that's been given to them. It's not that every believer is now uh, preaching sermons. No, they're simply sharing the good news of Jesus in conversation wherever they go. In unexpected circumstances, in their case, having to flee Jerusalem, the Lord opens up new opportunities for the people to speak of Jesus. And I wonder, isn't he at the moment doing much the same thing for us, giving us an opportunity for more heartfelt conversations with family and friends and bringing other people into our lives for everyday conversations as well? Whether it's neighbours we've never chatted to before, uh, delivery people and shop workers who we suddenly appreciate in a new way, or just people walking past our houses out doing their daily exercise, who are suddenly much more willing to say hello. In unexpected circumstances, in our case, the coronavirus, the Lord can and will open up new opportunities for his people to speak about Jesus. Well, finally, in the final section of this book for this morning, chapters 8 to 12, Luke records how God, through these seemingly tragic circumstances, does indeed spread Jesus's followers abroad to be his witnesses in Judea and Samaria, just as Jesus promised. And the way Luke demonstrates this spread of the gospel is by highlighting throughout these chapters a series of unlikely conversions. First of all, there's the Samaritans at the beginning of chapter 8. Now, the people of Samaria were technically half Jewish, but the Jewish people despised them, considering them in many ways even worse than the Gentiles. But now in chapter 8, verse 5, we see Philip going down to the city of Samaria and proclaiming to them the Christ. And Luke says the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip. And when they heard him and saw the signs that he did, and Luke goes on to tell us that many of them believe and are baptised and there is much joy in the city. Then an angel appears and instructs Philip to head south to meet an Ethiopian eunuch who's on the road back from Jerusalem. He's a Jew and celebrating there and he's on the way back home. And just as Philip draws alongside his uh, chariot, he hears the man inside reading aloud from Isaiah 53, those very chapters that we studied together for a couple of weeks before Easter. But the man has one question. Who is this promise suffering servant that Isaiah speaks of? And beginning with this one passage, uh, Philip explains to him the whole good news about Jesus. And the man is saved and immediately baptised. Next comes Saul, the persecutor, that sort of shadowy and frightening figure that was introduced at the end of chapter seven, standing and giving approval uh, to Stephen's execution. 
He's hunting down and arresting Christians wherever he can find them. And now hearing that some of them have gone down to Damascus, he sets out to find and arrest them there. But the Lord Jesus has other plans for Saul. In a blinding light from heaven, the risen Jesus meets Saul on the road to Damascus and commissions him to carry his name before the Gentiles and the children of Israel. And so in this beautifully ironic twist, the one who had been going to persecute Jesus's followers in Damascus ends up preaching the gospel of Jesus in Damascus. Oh, the wisdom of God and his gospel in this. And what an encouragement for us to remember that no one is so lost and so far from Jesus that they're beyond the reach of the gospel. Chapter 9, verse 31 then provides a nice summary as to how far the gospel has spread by this point. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. But it's about to go further still, breaking across the greatest boundary yet as it reaches Cornelius, the Roman centurion. Now, the story of Cornelius is the longest narrative. His, the story of his conversion is the longest bit of narrative in the book of Acts, which highlights its significance. And his conversion is significant because Cornelius is completely non-Jewish. He's not a Jew or a half-Jewish Samaritan. He's a Gentile. This is the moment where God will demonstrate that the gospel truly is for all people. An angel appears to him and tells him to summon a man called Peter. Meanwhile, Peter receives a vision from God involving all sorts of animals that were considered ritually unclean for a Jew to eat. And then he hears a voice telling him not to call impure what God has now made pure. Well, Peter is a bit perplexed as to the meaning and significance of this vision. But then, wouldn't you know it, at just that moment, the answer walks right in the door. Messengers from Cornelius's house asking Peter to come. And so Peter follows them to his house, which is now full of Gentiles because Cornelius has invited all of his family and close friends to hear from Peter. And they all respond to the good news about Jesus. And then to top it all, the Holy Spirit turns up just as he did at Pentecost in chapter two. But this time it's for a Roman centurion and all his non-Jewish family and friends. And the Jewish believers who've traveled there with Peter, we're told in chapter 10, verse 45, were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. The gospel has just gone global. As Peter tells Cornelius in Verse 36, Jesus Christ is Lord of all. And then the fifth and final surprising conversion that Luke records in this section of Acts is that of the new and rapidly growing church in Antioch. Now, Antioch was the largest and most cosmopolitan city in that part of the Roman Empire. Soon the news reaches the ears of those at the church in Jerusalem that a great many Gentiles are turning to the Lord in Antioch. So they send Barnabas to investigate 
And what Barnabas finds there thrills his heart. The church in Antioch is thriving and growing and sending for Saul to travel down from Tarsus and help him. These two brothers in Christ spend a whole year together teaching the church in Antioch and helping a great many people there. And so the church in Antioch is established as the first large multi-ethnic church in history. And it will soon become the first church to send out international missionaries. And Luke tells us it's the first place where Jesus's followers become known as Christians. So there we have it, a series of most unlikely conversions that actually were, of course, not really unlikely at all. Because Jesus had promised that his disciples, through their witness and in the power of the Holy Spirit, would go out from Jerusalem into Judea and Samaria and on to the ends of the earth. Now, we've got to wait until the second half of Acts for the beginning of that final stage. But finally, for this morning in in this half, Luke turns our attention back to Jerusalem in chapter 12 to give us an account of the apostle, the angel and the king. Now, I've got to confess, I stole that title because I just think it's brilliant. The apostle, the angel and the king. Back in Jerusalem, King Herod has executed James, the brother of John. And now he's imprisoned Peter and plans to publicly execute him too at the first opportunity. And he's not taking any chances. No doubt aware of Peter's former prison breaks, he assigns four squads of soldiers to guard Peter this time. That's 16 heavily armed men. Peter is utterly trapped. But not far away, at Mary's house, the church gathers together to pray. And suddenly, during what was probably the night before his execution, Peter is freed by the angel of the Lord in what has to be the most remarkable prison bake in the history of the world. The guards have no idea. Even Peter thinks he must be dreaming. And back home where the believers have gathered to pray, when he does turn up at the door, they almost don't let him in. They're so surprised that God has actually answered their prayers. Peter is free. And soon afterward, Herod is the one who meets an untimely end. As John Stott writes, at the beginning of the chapter, Herod is on the rampage arresting and persecuting the church leaders. At the end, he is himself struck down and dies. The chapter opens with James dead, Peter in prison and Herod triumphing. It closes with Herod dead. Peter was free and the word of God was triumphing. Such is the power of God to overthrow hostile human plans and to establish his own in their place. The point is this, the mission of Jesus's church and the advance of his gospel in the world cannot be hindered by any worldly power. Even in the face of the severest persecution, Luke tells us, verse 24 of chapter 12, the word of God increased and multiplied. And that's the story of Acts so far. It's a thrilling read. But just before we finish and just before we get down to reading it, I just want to highlight four repeated themes for us to look out for 
as we read through these 12 chapters together this month. First of all, first repeated theme is that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. Luke repeatedly shows us that Jesus fulfills all of God's marvellous and gracious plans and promises that he gave throughout the Old Testament, which reminds us again and again that what we believe and trust as Christians is grounded in the truth of God's word and his word never returns empty. God always keeps and fulfills his promises so we can trust his word. We can proclaim and pass on his word and we can expect his word to do great and mighty things. Second repeated theme is that Jesus is the good news of the gospel. Jesus is the good news of the gospel. Throughout the book, wherever Christians find themselves, the message that they treasure and the message that they proclaim is always the same. It never changes. It's always Jesus. His life, death, resurrection, exaltation and return. And along with it, the invitation to repent and believe and receive forgiveness in his name. That same message then should be our treasure and our proclamation today too. Jesus crucified, risen, reigning and returning. That's the glorious good news that saves. Third repeated theme is that God is saving a people for himself. Acts reveals to us again and again that God is not just out to save individuals, but to create a whole new family, a people for his own possession, who love Jesus and who love each other like Jesus. And as we've seen, this new family, the church, is made up of all sorts of different kinds of people. In fact, we heard it in the children's story this morning. This is God's very good idea. The gospel crosses over all barriers of geography, uh, ethnicity, culture, and status. There is no one beyond the reach of God's saving power. There is no one who does not need to experience God's redeeming grace. There is no one who is not welcome to come into the new family of God. And fourthly and finally, Repeated theme, the gospel of grace is unstoppable. The gospel is unstoppable. Whatever obstacles arise, the gospel continues to spread. Just, just look out for it again and again as, as you read through Acts. Nothing can stand in its way. And the reason it's unstoppable is that Jesus sits upon the throne as king of all the earth. And he has poured out his Holy Spirit on all his people and he's promised that through their witness, through our witness, the gospel will go out to every people, language, tribe and nation. And he will surely keep his promises. Let's pray.